Hello and welcome to the How The Fuck podcast. It's been a little while since we've had an episode, I know, but this one should more than make up for that. This week I'm chatting to Anthony Canada, who needs very little introduction to most marketers. He was the first marketer and founding CMO at Gainsight, which grew to 100 million ARR and solved over 1 billion during his time there. More recently, he was the CMO at Front. And at the time of recording this episode, Anthony had just joined Hopin, a virtual events management platform as their new CMO. Hopin is the fastest growing SaaS business ever with a valuation of 5.6 billion in under two years since their founding. So safe to say he knows his stuff and has been part of some crazy exciting growth stories. We focus much of the episode on events. Events are a big part of the story of how Gainsight created the category of customer success. Anthony and his team started and grew the first customer success conference from 300 to more than 6,000 attendees. We hear a lot about the content strategy, brand building, demand gen tactics used to grow Gainsight and to progress the category, including writing books and starting university courses, before we then move on to the Hopin story. Diving into what Anthony's first three weeks at Hopin looked like, including why he joined and the strategies that are already underway. I hope you enjoyed the episode and if you're new here don't forget to hit subscribe at thefuck.com fuck spelt with an x to get consistently awesome podcast episodes and written marketing strategies to help you grow your startup faster. The first place I would like to start actually is just to talk about like your route into marketing. You joined Gainsight as a marketing leader but without any background in marketing. Do you think that made you more valuable and think a bit differently to other people? And also, what kind of advice would you have for new marketers? I think you seem to have chosen a great company to work for as a marketer. Um, what's your advice for jumping into marketing? Yeah, Gainsight was my first marketing job, but you know, maybe important to, to share that prior to that, I'd spent some time in sales and business development and then um, product most recently before making the jump to marketing. So I think that experience on the both go-to-market side, but also, you know, a bit on the, the EPD side helped shape a little bit of my thinking kind of going into marketing. So it wasn't kind of a, a complete fresh uh, beginning, I guess, but in a way it was because, you know, I didn't have a lot of the bias that I think people that have been in marketing for several years had at the time, because the playbook for marketers is being reinvented all the time. Like there wasn't this idea of, you know, streaming and clubhouse and all these other things that we're kind of navigating right now. We're constantly learning and constantly reinventing the profession. So I think bringing in some first principles is, is probably healthy for any real marketer. And at Gainsight in particular, what we had to do was not that we knew it at the time, but we were trying to invent a new software category and there wasn't a lot of best practices for how to do that. So if I was just relying on the old trusted playbook, you know, we'd pour a bunch of money into AdWords and, you know, see what happens. And I don't know if that would have worked for us. So yeah, I think if you're a marketer kind of coming into uh, a new role, I think, you know, being naive enough to try new things and to experiment, I think is definitely one of them. Second is pay attention to pop culture, even if you're enterprise software. I know it sounds silly, but you know, I don't take my inspiration from Salesforce, from some of these other kind of B2B companies. I look to what are people doing? What are consumers interacting with? Whether it's Twitch or Disney or you know Amazon, obviously all these other kind of companies. Airbnb is a classic example. How are they building kind of emotional connection with their audience? And those are ways that we can figure out the right channels to use and all these types of things. So I definitely think, uh, you know, paying attention to what's happening in the world is probably one of the most important traits a marketer can bring to a role. I saw that in your LinkedIn profile, like a B2C marketer trapped in a, in a B2B body. Yeah, that sounds like what you're talking about there. I know I haven't been in marketing for like a long, long time, so it's still 
as I'm sort of more and more learning the ropes of it, I come across exactly like the playbooks you're talking about, like eBooks, uh, top of funnel lead generation, demand generation, yep. all that kind of stuff. It's always hard to know what to choose. Totally. But I could see that coming into it as a product manager or and a sales experience, you get that a bit more of a full picture. I think you understand from the product lens, you understand empathy for customers. And that's something that is really hard to, to teach. I think from sales, you understand that everything you do has to turn into somewhere in the marketing funnel. You know, even the craziest ideas have to somehow turn into leads or pipeline or, or what have you. So I think there's definitely lessons to be learned from, you know, in marketing, from looking across the organization. One of the things I kind of asked just to bring back to was about like advice for new marketers. And I think about like joining a company, did you know the game site? Did you make an intentional choice? Like this is like a rocket ship. I'm going to go for that. Or did you? Uh, no idea. Yeah. The company was great founders and none of this is disparaging, but it was based in, you know, St. Louis, Missouri, which in the States here, it's just kind of the middle of America, you know, had a, a couple, a handful of customers, that sort of thing. So there, there wasn't this like tailwind behind it that, that I think made it like an obvious choice for me. And this is actually advice I think worth paying attention to is, or especially earlier in your career, following people in your career, people that trust you, that invest in you, that you think are, are sort of, you know, going places is probably the biggest lesson of my career. It's almost wrong to say early career. Like I think the, the best currency we have in our careers is the relationships that we have. And so in my case, I knew the CEO who was joining this company called Jaybera Software in St. Louis. And I worked with him before. He was a values-driven leader. He really focused on culture. And I, everyone that met him loved him or, or spoke so highly of him. And I knew why having a chance to see it firsthand. And so when he joined, when he called me, actually, I didn't even know what the company was, but in my mind, I knew I was going to say yes to whatever he was going to ask me. So I think that's kind of something that stays with me now as, as I go forward in my career. Yeah, that's great advice. It's, it's hard to find people you like love working with. So yeah, you also mentioned they're creating category Gainsight, which I yeah, love to spend more time on. So you didn't know that you're going to create a category. What did you just see a problem and you're like, we need to, to solve this problem? Or? I don't even know if I knew what a category was uh, when we first started, but we just had this, you know, we, we were bringing those first principles I was talking about to the team. And, and we were saying, you know, who are we? Like, how do I talk about what we do? And I think just the way the human mind works, we try to find cognitive references that we can anchor onto and hang onto. And so we say, we're the Uber of this, right? We're the, you know, the sales force for events, whatever. And there wasn't an obvious cognitive model here. The company had realized that over time, we needed to care just as much about retention and renewals and upsell and the kind of quote, post-sales relationship with the customer as we did with pre-sales. But whenever you looked at what the post-sales technology stack was, it was all customer support at the time, which is more reactive, right? Like I have a problem, I'm going to my support team versus someone anticipating my needs. And so we didn't have a good model for it. We didn't know what to call it. And what we saw as we sort of surveyed the marketplace was there was actually a profession, a group of people called customer success managers who actually owned the outcome for this. And so we weren't trying to create a category, but the, the hypothesis that we had early was what would it look like if we just radically championed this persona and help serve them through content marketing to help them kind of get educated on how to do their job, to justify their existence to their boss, to their, their board. And then what if we did an event or, or a series of events that help bring them together to, to share best practices and to network and these types of things. And so uh, we validated that hypothesis in our first year. And then that became the core marketing strategy for seven plus years at, at Gainsight. And so only, you know, 
halfway through the journey that we start seeing our name pop up as, you know, companies that were creating categories or, or whatever. And that's when we start saying, oh, okay, wow, there might be a formula here to, to what we're doing. That must be exciting to see that stage. What you said it was validated in the first year. What made you realize that this could actually contribute to, to business growth, just serving others? A big part of it was, you know, like I said, we had five customers at the time, like, you know, our marketing database was very limited. There wasn't much tailwind to push growth for the business. We said like, we're going to do an event, but to bring these people together, bring the community together, but we're not going to talk about our product because it's basically just about pre-market, you know, maybe may ready for the market now. We're not going to highlight our customers. There's not too many of them, at least. I think we highlighted the ones that we had. And so no one would come to a Gainsight user conference, but people might come to an industry conference all about customer success. So we called it something else. We called it Pulse, didn't even brand it with the company. We just put ourselves in the sponsor list effectively. We worked our, our network. We just closed a series A. So worked with our investors to kind of invite a bunch of folks. And we tried every means we could to try to get uh, get folks to, to show up. And we had 300 people there in our first year. So again, for a company of 25 employees, call it, you know, five customers, get 300 people. Back in 2013, especially as conferences at the time weren't quite as in vogue, I guess, as they are now. It was an achievement. And I think that the harder part to, to measure and the harder part to talk about is the feeling. Because when you're in that room with 300 people that are all going through the same thing, there's this cathartic sense of like, wow, we're in this together. And that's what really tipped the scale for us. It wasn't how many attendees were in the room, but it was the feedback that we got. It was the energy that we observed. And we said, wow, we got to do this every month, every week or something. And that's what we started coming up with a marketing strategy that would help us find ways to to scale it and not have to do a conference every month. Were you seeing at that point revenue from that? Yeah, I don't remember the exact number, but what we saw is those 300 folks, you know, of which I think, you know, realistically about 80% were prospects who were now coming and hearing us talk about, you know, the problem set in the market. We we're talking about the solution, but we were discussing the problem and providing a, a platform for folks to talk about the problem. So the 80% of those, those prospects, attendees became leads for us. And we wanted to be careful not to, you know, pierce through our, our brand veil and, and be, you know, salesy and all that. But we found ways to follow up with them. And if not, they were, you know, nurtured through our various campaigns that we ran after that. So we did like a newsletter for customer success, best practices. We did like a webinar series. We did all these other things. And so that batch of 300 kind of fueled our our growth that got us to kind of the next stage at least. And then honestly, like, I don't know, it, it kind of blacked out for seven years. It just kept growing and growing and, and compounding. And I think that's the beautiful thing about community is it compounds over, over time. So that program became 6,000 people at um, a big conference hall we had in San Francisco called Moscone Center. And, you know, $100 million of ARR and a you know, $1.1 billion acquisition from Vista. So it all happened pretty fast. But I think the important part is that this idea of serving the persona and resourcing them and gathering them, that thought leadership really was the fuel that, that I think made it all happen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I imagine it must feel very powerful to have a focus in your marketing as well. This is the content we create, this topic and that kind of thing. I can imagine. Totally. I think like if we apply this to like other people, like who, who else do you think? Who should be making a category? Is there a stage as well that like too, you're too young and you don't have enough money to make it work? It is expensive, I'll admit. And, you know, if you're a early stage founder and you're like, okay, I'm into a conference in San Francisco, like that's ridiculous. I mean, we, we did have the benefit of having just raised a series A and, you know, our board and CEO are very bullish leaning into to, to trying it. But with that being said, I think the tactics may evolve, but the strategy remains the same. The strategy, I think you're never too early to do. And the, the idea behind the strategy is, you know, is there a problem set that you've identified with your business 
that no other company has really paid attention to in a meaningful way. Meaning I find folks that we compete with, but they're kind of like competing at the edges. They're not really a direct competitor. Like, okay, that might be a signal that there's something here. And you're like, okay, there's a lot of people don't really understand what we do. It's hard to explain it in messaging, but the people that do are early customers. They're raving fans. They totally get it. That might be another clue that there might be a persona here or community that deeply cares about what you're working on, but the rest of the world needs to be educated around it. They could benefit from a voice out there helping kind of tell the world the story. And so the obvious answer isn't always start a conference, although I will plug tools like Hopin help you now do that in a much more cost-effective way than a conference hall. But the point is, you know, this could be a, a ebook that you write. This could be a series of blog posts that you write. And the important thing is you're not writing about your product. You're writing about the problem and your product along with your overall content marketing strategy becomes part of the solution that you introduce over time, but you're generating leads. You're generating a top of funnel by talking about the problem and getting folks kind of attracted to the brand. I was going to ask you a bit more as well about the, the, the other tactics that you deployed over. Yeah. Yeah. It's great journey. What would, I guess events is a massive, massive part of that, like conferences. I actually do think it's a good chance to, to promote Hopin because <laughs> events are moving online, aren't they, obviously? Totally. Um, what else? Yeah. What are the other things that you, what kind of yeah. what content do you have to create? Our ambition was to take our blog from being a static corporate blog, basically, and make it feel like the online home or the destination site for this industry for this category. And what do I mean by that? That if you have a question about how to do your job and you're in this profession or, or if you're a salesperson, but you care about this topic or whatever, this was going to be the place that was going to deliver your content or best practices. And we took this very seriously. Like this wasn't something we wanted to ship a blog post every week. I mean, obviously starting small, but over time scaling with ambition to say, you know, we're a network. We're like, you know, NBC doesn't just turn off or run reruns every day, right? Like we have to be constantly shipping new content that's fresh and exciting and real and valuable to our, to our audience. And so that was our aspiration for the blog. It was great because in addition to helping elevate our thought leadership, there was some meaningful SEO benefit that came from that. So over time, our, you know, organic search traffic to gainsight.com grew, grew significantly in our blog was really kind of the home of that. And then just carrying that theme forward, what are other forms of content that you can really capture? Like there's podcasts, you know, just like the one we're on now, there's, you know, virtual events we talked about as well as user groups. And so we found that we were collecting contact information for people that cared about customer success in cities around the world. What if we helped organize small meetups in the, in the local cities that they're operating in? To all come together in the name of customer success and share best practices. So that was a program that we ran. And maybe one more, like we did something kind of counter culturally, but we created a online university to certify people in customer success. Tactically, that's a series of webinars and blog posts and things that are put into an LMS system. So it's not like radically different from everything we're talking about. And in fact, no one gave us authority to become a certification provider, I guess. We just sort of said, look, like we have these badges, you can put them on your LinkedIn profile. And then what we found is people started saying, we saw in job descriptions, like must be a certified CSM through Pulse Academy. We saw people, you know, wearing it with pride on their LinkedIn profiles, like 301 level certified CSM coming out of Pulse Academy. So that stuff helped us engage from a content perspective and build again, both thought leadership in the market, but really demand for, for our sales team that we eventually convert into, into deals. You, do, you have to have already have some kind of authority, I guess, to be able to say this is a university course. We didn't have it. Really? I mean, we just threw it out there. Yeah, we bought customersuccessuniversity.com. It wasn't a .edu, unfortunately. <laughs> Tried really hard to get a .edu, but apparently you have to like literally start a university to, to be able to do that, which we tried. But anyway, um, <laughs> 
Yeah, I, honestly, I, I think that so long as you're authentic with your intention, so long as the content is valuable, and I think this is maybe my two cents, but so long as it's not just you as the brand telling the story, but rather building a platform, leading with humility and saying, we're not the sole experts, but but you, the community are the experts, but we're going to bring you all together as adjunct professors to share a course and, and to be a part of what we're building. I think that helps build the, the overall brand equity of the program. Yeah, wow. Out of interest, how big was your team at this point? And on the marketing side. When the university was first launched, still pretty small. I'd say five or less of us, okay. three, three to five. Yeah. But a high output team, but also I'll admit, you know, the V1 left a lot to be desired. And so over <laughs> time, it's gotten much, much better. But yeah, I think the proof of concept was with a very small team. Yeah. Okay, nice. You also created a book, right? I think that's quite an exciting story. Yeah. Well, we did we did a couple of books on the Gainsight side. We did three books. And I think the idea behind that was, and for as digital as, as we've all become, there's something about having it in print. There's something about saying you wrote the book on the category. And so we did that early days, I think 2014 with customer success. And we were fortunate to partner with Wiley on that. And that became great from a customer success perspective. You know, all of our events, we sent up copies to all of our customers. And I think they, they got a lot of value from that for field marketing. When we were meeting with prospects, you know, we would bring a bunch of books with us at our events. We had a bunch of books. So it was a chance to like, you know, provide a little bit of value, I guess, but also in a way that's, that's not digital, which in an increasing world of NFTs and everything, it's nice to have, hold something in your hand. So we ended up releasing three books over time. So that was sort of our director VP level kind of book, or at least a practitioner book as well, which the hope was if you're onboarding as a CSM, like this is required reading but to figure out how to do your job. And then we wrote a book that's for CEOs and board members and investors and folks to really make customer success uh, a strategy and an imperative across the company. So we sort of layered our personas across the three books that we ended up publishing, which I think all, all had some pretty benefit, but I think I got jealous as the marketer and I had an opportunity to work with Wiley to write a book on basically documenting everything we're talking about here, like the, the why create a category, how do you do it? Because I found there actually aren't a lot of best practices for how to do this. There's one other book written on it. So what I wanted was to take the theories that were kind of talked about in the other book, but give me something practical that I can talk to my CFO about. So yeah. when, when I'm asking for a budget, how do I convince my CEO that we should do this? And so this became kind of an operator's manual to creating a new category. It was kind of the idea. It's interesting because it definitely feels like it's popular now to create a category. Yeah. You know, almost. Yeah. There's some companies that I see have created a category and I'm not sure if they should have really. So much you now need to do to make that yeah. thing more relevant. But like the fact that you could naturally, I guess, fit into a role that was sort of underserved already. Yeah, totally. That was big for us. Yeah, the sequel to the book that I'd like to write one day is Don't Create a Category. Um, <laughs> it's, it's basically... You know, I say that half half joking, but you're right. It's it's expensive. It's a long haul. There's so many benefits, but it also come, comes at quite a bit of cost. So if, if you don't have to, if you have a pretty clear product market fit with an existing buyer that's empowered and you're replacing this database software with that database, like Snowflake, maybe it's the beautiful example of a company that didn't need to create a category. They just had a $34 billion IPO and said, this was fine. It's, it's not necessarily the answer to slow growth at the moment kind of thing. no not at all <laughs> in fact it might be the opposite because it's a long game right so like if, if growth is slowing down creating a category you know you got to be willing to, to put in a year 18 months two years before even seeing a lot of result but i'd say that the underlying tactics of category creation are true across all the entire marketing landscape regardless of whatever company uh whatever your go to market is and i think the reason is we're starting to realize as an industry that we have to start caring about brand because growth at all costs has been the primary driver in B2B 
while our friends in B2C have realized that it's all about brand, when it's Coke versus Pepsi, like the products are somewhat, depending on where you fall, maybe in this in this argument, but somewhat similar, right? Or Monster or Red Bull, but what you're joining is a community, which you're signing up for is a lifestyle in between one or the other. And in B2B, brands that are able to figure that out and companies are able to figure that out and market to the to the humans behind the logos that we try to sell to, that's the big takeaway, whether you're creating a category or not. It's tempting to think that in the B2B side that you, you just need to solve a problem and really just like fit that need. And that's because someone right. needs to save time at work, but not go that one more step and make a movement behind it. Totally. It's the whole uh, Simon Sinek, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. So you got to spend some time, you know, building out the why. Yeah, definitely. From like purely a tactical kind of point of view, how did you and your team go about creating content? And I mean, coming up with so many new ideas. Yeah, there was probably at least three different kind of themes or sources of inspiration. Like the first was very practical from an SEO perspective. So what were people searching for? So I'll give you an example. We put together a piece of content called how to host a quarterly business review, which is a key part of the, the customer success job because we knew QBRs were all over. So search and I haven't been at the company for two two years. But as I left that single blog post written in 2014, I believe was generating like 20% of Gainsight's traffic all from that one singular post. So SEO was a big driver. Second was our customers. Like what were we hearing from our customers? I think we have like privileged access to practitioners who were going through the sort of coming of age for this role. What were their struggles? Where were they running into roadblocks? And so we kind of kept the content roadmap pretty full, but just listening to our customers and sourcing ideas there. And then the third is a little room for innovation. So where were we headed? You know, what was our CEO hearing that was maybe a theme that crossed, you know, some different categories, but no one had really picked up on yet. What were some of the product announcements coming up for us that we wanted to help shape the market in, in that direction a bit and be able to sort of skate ahead of the rest of the company. Those, those types of themes, I think, were macroeconomic themes too, like that have some sort of cultural relevance in. So those were probably the big three. When we were a team of three of us, one of us was doing the writing and we weren't shipping every day. This whole NBC example I gave earlier, that was not the state in the early days by any means. It's not the state today at Hopin, you know, as well with 400 plus employees. We have to build this kind of thoughtfully. But I think the goal was let's ship one blog post a week and then let's get a customer response to a blog post every week too. And so we end up shipping two blog posts a week. And over time, we start to scale that by in a couple of ways, we hired a dedicated full-time content writer, which was helpful. Eventually, I think we had about two people total doing the writing. Our CEO loves to write, which is weird. I know you don't see that very often, but that was helpful. And back before we had in-flight Wi-Fi as an option, we just send them across the country and we come back with like an ebook every time or like 12 blog posts or something. So that was helpful. And then we tapped our customer success team. So who are the people in your organization that are the potential buyers of the product out in the market and can you create some incentives to get them to contribute you know blog posts in their spare time or after hours you know whether it's something silly like a amazon gift card or something along those lines or can you even put it in their comp i've seen some companies say as part of the variable comp model for our team, we ask them to write a certain amount of thought leadership every month, whether it's writing on a blog post, participating in webinars, speaking at events, hosting podcasts, all that sort of stuff. So yeah. Was your, I guess, philosophy on this to just create for your customers who are going to be just completely selflessly? Or was there like some element of, you know, CTA at the bottom of every blog post? Oh, totally. Like I, I think about it as we engineered the blog and we did it front actually, and hopefully we'll do it again and hop in. The blog externally feels consumery. It feels like the Atlantic or some of these other web properties that people really enjoy kind of navigating and diving deep and spending a lot of time in. But underneath it, the architecture is purely B2B demand gen. So we had content offers, you know, on the right side, persistent. We had content offers like 
embedded in the blog posts themselves. Everything we're allowed to do in a GDPR world, we did. But you know, the important thing is to make sure you're gathering consent, but you're doing it the right way. But then once you get consent, how can you thoughtfully nurture this audience in a way that delivers real value and, and isn't purely salesy? That's sort of more of the magic for us was after we got them into the funnel. So was your aim really like collecting contact information and then nurturing that down the funnel? Totally. Yeah. And we looked at that metric quite a lot, all the conversions, but opt-ins basically into the database. You asked a question earlier about how did you know things were working after the first event? That was really the metric we started to see grow quite a bit is that not only were we getting a lot of opt-ins, but we were getting opt-ins from the right companies, from the right titles. And, you know, it was like, okay, we're actually starting to make an impact here in the market. And obviously that was something only we could see internally. But then when you saw that number grow and scale over time, like, okay, we're, our brand efficacy in the market is solid. Now, some of these folks may not want to buy software and that's another problem. So, you know, we look at the conversions or opt-ins to MQL conversion rate and get a sense of, okay, how many of these people are, are actually in market or actually, you know, qualified, but no, from at the highest level, our ambition was to get every customer success professional in the world opted into our Marketo database. I think I can ask you stuff on that for a while, but I, <laughs> I want to, I think I want to go into, into hop in because I think, yeah. I, so you just started. So I've actually got you at like the perfect time. Uh, <laughs> my first interview, actually. It's my first hop in interview. Yeah. Cool. I'll make sure yeah. I it quickly. Uh, <laughs> so what, why did you join? So you can tell, you know, talking about our history of Gainsight, but events were a big part of our brand building and just the way we kind of engaged with our, our audience. And many of us, I think, especially in the pandemic, think back to some of the events we've been to where we locked arms with our community, whether it's on the personal side or professionally. And being in person, that energy that you pick up is, is very hard to replicate, very hard to find ways to kind of do that. So when I left Gainsight, I became an EIR at a venture firm out here called Battery Ventures. And I was actually incubating an event company. Because I started breaking it apart and saying, what do I love about my career? What do I love about marketing? And at the atomic level, I realized the connection between people, whether digitally or in person, but like events are the channel by which that happens. And that's really some of the best kind of most inspired work we had at Gainsight was there. But also these things are really hard. It's hard to put on a large event. It's expensive and it takes the whole company, not just the events team to pull it off. And then after the event, you're left with very little actual ROI on how it went. You're left with how many people registered, how many showed up, what's the NPS, and that's typically what most events care about. Did we totally ruin the budget or, or how, where do we land? But the truth is, we found that events impact so much more than just those metrics. They impact real business outcomes. Our product usage went up, our NPS went up, our, our product NPS should say. Our employees' satisfaction went up just being part of a, a market leader. So it was my belief that events have such a transformative impact on business outcomes. But because of that gap, what we started seeing is actually an empathy crisis happening internally in teams where event people weren't viewed as strategic revenue drivers. They were viewed as party planners or they were viewed as just disconnected completely from the results of the company. And that honestly doesn't feel very good if you're an event professional. So what I wanted to do is build software to both prove the ROI of events, but also rally a community of people together to help champion the event community, the event professional community. Turns out entrepreneurship is a lonely journey. And I hit some blocks and realized that the other part of this that I love is working with a team. And, and so at the time got picked up by a really awesome company called Front, spent 15 months there, you know, really doing a lot of what we talked about actually, positioning the why and getting some of our content programs out in, in the world. And, you know, would have stayed at Front forever, really, really enjoyed it. 
until I got got an email from from Hopton in late December, early January. And now hearing my history and hearing kind of this this company I was working on, this really is sort of a fulfillment of not just I think a professional kind of moment for me but and my history, but honestly a, a community that I care very deeply about. So a chance to co-author the future of what events are going to look like, both in person with what we're call, now calling kind of hybrid events, but overall this kind of digital layer that'll sit on top of our in-person events to help increase the reach of these things and improve ROI and make thought leadership and community more inclusive and accessible by people who can't get on the plane and, and fly to San Francisco or whatever. That's very exciting to me. The virtual event program is obviously huge. We acquired a business called StreamYard. And so as you think about not just these events from that perspective, but building an audience and building your brand and kind of communicating with your community of followers, like all of this stuff just fits right into where I'm yeah. extremely passionate. And so I'm very excited about it. Wow. Seems like a very cool time to start as well. If I just saw an article like two weeks ago about Hopin going from zero to billions or something, <laughs> insane growth. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And obviously being here for two weeks takes zero credit for it. So don't take any of my comments is that they went from, I think there was like three people to over 400 people in one year from zero revenue to 64 million in ARR, fastest growing SaaS business of all time. But I think the plan is to hit hundred million here in the next couple of months. So beating Slack, I think by about 18 months in their journey. So none of this is bragging, but it's saying, look, like there's clearly momentum behind this idea that especially leaving this pandemic that we care about experience. Experiences. We care about community. We care about really connecting with our audience, whether we have to do it virtually, because now we've learned, we've gotten really good at it, or at least all of us have gotten a little bit better at it because we had to. And then as we open up again, you know, we have an opportunity to make it, make these events so much more inclusive and, and connected. So bringing a lot of learnings into the in-person experience too. So it's just huge validation for, I think, what we're seeing out, out in the marketplace. In your first three weeks, what's been your priority? Oh my gosh. It's been a beautiful blur. The company moves pretty fast. If you haven't seen it in the news, I think that's the one adjective you can describe to the business. Several things. I mean, I think obviously your normal, like meet everyone and try to establish some relationships at the company. But beyond that, you know, one of the things we're tackling is, and also announcing the Series C that we had two weeks ago. It was a short-term priority, but there's probably two big areas that I focused on initially, maybe three. The first is recruiting. And so the marketing team as a cohort within the 400 is pretty small. And so we've got some catching up to do to grow the rest of the business. And so I've been working to open up Rex and hire and, and, and that sort of thing. So if anyone's interested in joining Hop in Marketing, please let me know if you're listening to this. But the second piece is becoming a multi-product company. So this is something that's really interesting. So Hopin had acquired StreamYard, which is, again, we talked about it at a high level, but a different sort of buyer, right? I mean, we're on the record of saying about 20% of StreamYard's customers use it for events, but the 80% use it for within the, the context of the creator economy, building their followers on social and everything from makeup bloggers to intellectuals who have, you know, podcasts just like this and are streaming to you know, LinkedIn and, and Facebook, and YouTube, and kind of building their audiences. So you name it, you know, across all verticals, they have some customers, but we're in market today as a single product for event professionals. And so a lot of what we're working on in the back end is how do we show up publicly? What is an underlying brand positioning that kind of ties all of our various products together? And how do we then go and bring that to market in a, in a very thoughtful way? That's been kind of the creative exercise that I've been working on with the team. And it's been awesome. We'll hopefully have some cool things to share here uh, very soon. It's tough to do when, you, when you're new to a company, I guess, like the deep thinking positioning <laughs> stuff. It is. It is. You get the benefit of having done events. Right. Yeah. That's the benefit is 
the learning curve is less steep, at least understanding that side of the business, the, the creator economy is still learning about that. But yeah, I think there's some, obviously a great team that's already been built here. Johnny's amazing, has a lot of conviction for where this market's going and a great team, you know, beneath him. And also we're recruiting some awesome folks in brand that can help us kind of figure out the story. So I think the challenge is, and I think as marketers, we all appreciate having to shrink timelines down to, to deliver something. Like you probably want to do something like what I'm talking about in about six to nine months to go and run some research and do some customer kind of interviews and all that. And we're going to do that. But we also want to turn that six to nine month process into about a six to nine week process, given just the speed in which is kind of the key part of our culture here. That's intense. Exactly. We need a new word that melds fun and intense because that, that's exactly what it is. Challenging. maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. I know, I guess um, it's coming to the end of our time. Honestly, it's been really awesome. Great with you. Um, Thank yeah, you. Really interesting. Good luck. Good luck hiring your team and, and <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to see some good news stories coming out soon. So Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on and we'll obviously promote it on our side once we once we go live. Awesome. Great. Thank you.